Hello, and welcome to Saintly Progress, a podcast about the history of Christianity. Episode 5, Augustine of Canterbury, Apostle to the English? Did you know that there were two Augustines? This is something I vividly remember one of the clergy at church asking me during confirmation class, and I remember feeling quite disappointed by this. I thought there was something quite heroic about the idea of the great theologian St. Augustine also popping up to convert the English in between writing chapters of the City of God, but history got the better of that illusion. I mention this to draw attention to the distinction between the two Augustines. Many listeners, particularly those outside of England, may be more familiar with St. Augustine of Hippo, the 4th century theologian who is considered one of the founders of Western theology. However, we're not talking about him today. Today's episode is about another Augustine, an Italian missionary monk who led an expedition to convert the English and became the first Archbishop of Canterbury. In this episode, we will talk about the state of the church in Western Europe following the fall of the Roman Empire and the beginnings of Anglo-Saxon Christianity. But first, as always, a short life of Augustine of Canterbury. We do not know where he was born or anything about his backstory before he appears as the abbot of St Andrew's Monastery on the Chalian Hill in Rome. In 596 AD, the Pope Gregory the Great appointed Augustine as the leader of an expedition to convert the English, a pagan people who had settled in the island of Britain some hundred years before. Augustine travelled with a group of monks to Kent, where he successfully converted its king, Ethelbert. Augustine was raised first to bishop and then archbishop of Canterbury, the capital of the kingdom of Kent. There he rebuilt an ancient Roman church and also founded a monastery. Augustine's companions were sent to continue the work in various other places, and bishops were also established at Rochester and London. Although his mission was limited to the southeast of England, Augustine is conventionally known as the Apostle to the English. Okay, so far, so good. As always, there are a couple of details to fill in and nuances to insert, but that is the overall story. Let's now take a couple of steps backwards to work out what Britain was like when Augustine arrived, and why Pope Gregory needed to send him to convert the English in the first place. Until the 5th century, Britain, or at least most of the island of Britain, was a province of the Roman Empire. After Constantine, who you may remember from our last episode, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and we can reasonably assume that this meant that most of Roman Britain became at least officially Christian. At least three British bishops, it is assumed they were the bishops of London, York and Lincoln, were present at the Council of Arles that Constantine held in 314. By this stage, the population of Britain had been very widely Romanized, particularly the leadership, and so they are called the Romano-Britons. In this episode, I may talk about the Romano-Britons, or just the Britons, but I mean the same thing. They are the Romanized, largely Christian population of southern Britain, 
and the ancestors of the modern Welsh. As is the case in many parts of the Roman Empire, you might like to imagine the Romano-British aristocracy behaving pretty much as Roman elites in Italy, living in villas and towns with aqueducts and running water, wearing togas, although in Britain presumably with warm underclothes, growing wine, consuming imported olive oil, enjoying mosaics, all that stuff, and speaking a mixture of Latin and their native language, which modern scholars call archaic Welsh. All this changed when the Roman Empire spluttered to an end in the West in the 400s AD. In some parts of the empire, Roman culture seems to have continued largely unperturbed by the collapse of the Roman imperial government. In places like Italy, Spain and Gaul, the Roman administration gradually gave way to a patchwork quilt of small barbarian tribes who had settled on the land and took over tax-raising powers and so on, and the Romanized local elite carried on as they had always done, except that they paid their taxes to a different set of rulers. This seems to work because the German barbarians who had arrived in Gaul and Italy were keen to maintain as much of Roman culture as they could. In Britain, the picture was much more in line with the old-fashioned dramatic fall narrative and seems to be more confusing. The Roman government withdrew its armies from Britain in 410 AD to deal with German invasions of the core empire, and although this may have been intended as a temporary measure, they never returned. The Roman military presence in Britain had been an important source of both Roman culture and economic stimulus. Without them, the economy contracted because no one was buying all those swords and sandals, and the local elite found it harder to maintain their affluent way of life. Also, crucially, they had to organise their own defence. Britain had long been plagued by invasions from Ireland and Scotland, and also raids by pirates. Without the Roman army, the Romano-British had no one to protect them against all this, and so they engaged the services of some of these pirates, who came from a Germanic nation from across the North Sea. These people were, of course, the Anglo-Saxons, and this is how the English enter our story for the first time. We know very little for certain about all this. There is an old story that a British king called Vortigern invited a band of Anglo-Saxons led by two brothers, Hengist and Horsa, to fight for him in exchange for land in southern Britain. They eventually fell out with Vortigern, they stayed, seized more land, invited more of their countrymen to join them, and before you knew it, the Saxons began to take over. In the next century or so, large numbers of Germanic peoples had come to Britain and established several kingdoms in the east of the island. The traditional story was a violent one, that they pushed the Romano-British out, and that eastern Britain was settled afresh by peoples of fully Germanic stock. It is probably much more complicated than that, though, and almost certain that a lot of the common folk remained where they were. What is clear is that the Christian, Romanized British leadership was pushed into the western fringes of the island and replaced in the east by pagan Angles and Saxons. It is generally thought that the Anglo-Saxons were good at conquering flat places, but less good at hills. So the flat bits in the east that they had conquered became England, and the hilly places in the west remained in Romano-British hands, 
and are what are now known as Wales, Cornwall and Cumbria. The important things for our story are 1. Much of Britain was now ruled by pagan English rulers. 2. Wales and parts of Western England are still ruled by Christian rulers, but they speak Welsh. 3. Although the Christian leadership has been eradicated in England, many of the native British peasants are still there and presumably still remember Christianity. We do not know very much about Anglo-Saxon paganism. We know the names of some of their gods because they survive in the English language today. The days of the week, for instance. Tuesday for Chu, Wednesday for Woden, Thursday for Thor, and Friday for Freya. We have some idea about their festivals from a few written accounts from early Christian writers. They seem to have had different months of the year devoted to various gods, festivals, and events. An 8th century book tells us that their year began on the 25th of December with a month called Yule. This was followed by the month of cakes, which involved a festival of baking cakes for the gods, then months called Hrethamonat and Yostamonat, dedicated to fertility goddesses Hretha and Easter. Then a summer solstice, then a harvest month, and then a month of animal sacrifice. It is hard to tell very much for sure about Anglo-Saxon paganism because they did not write anything down themselves. This means that we can only rely on Christian authors, who wrote with a sort of colonial superiority and also use a lot of Old Testament parallels as reference points. Also, Although many modern scholars try to make assumptions about Old English heathenism based on the Norse pagan religion, because they worship many of the same gods, Odin, Thor, and so on, that is also quite difficult, because most of what we know about Norse heathenism comes from several centuries later. Regardless, to quote the historian Frank Stenton, the evidence shows that throughout the country in which Augustine and his companions laboured, heathenism was still a living religion when it met the Christian challenge. Okay, so far so good. Into this picture steps one of the chief protagonists of today's story, Pope Gregory I, who is known to history as Saint Gregory or Gregory the Great. Gregory was a Roman senator and had been the urban prefect, the mayor of Rome, before he became a monk. He converted his family mansion on the Chalian Hill into a monastery dedicated to St Andrew. It is still there, but now called St Gregory's. And in 590, he became the new bishop of Rome. Gregory wanted to make Rome a new focus for a Western church independent of the Roman emperors who were now based in Constantinople. He wrote detailed letters to Catholic bishops across Italy, Gaul and elsewhere, encouraging them to attend more energetically to teaching and pastoral care. And more importantly for our sake, he began to look at expanding Christianity and converting those barbarians who were still pagan. Specifically, he sponsored a mission to Britain. 
Damid McCulloch says that this mission to a former island outpost of the Roman Empire was a crucial step in the Roman Church's move from being subordinate to Constantinople to becoming its own independent authority. It was also the first time that a pope had taken a conscious effort to extend the frontiers of Christianity. We do not know for sure why Gregory became interested in the English. Frank Stenton suggests that he had been interested in England for some time before becoming pope. There is an old tradition that he was once walking in the Roman slave market one day when he saw two blonde boys. He asked the slaver where they were from and was told that they were Angeli. Gregory is supposed to have replied that they were not Angles, but angels, and determined at that point to bring such an excellent-looking people to the Christian faith. That tradition says that he had hoped to go to Britain himself, but that his duties as city prefects and then bishop stopped him from doing so. Why was he interested in England? Undoubtedly, there was a genuine interest in converting a heathen people, but it was also political. At a time when Gregory was seeking to make himself the leader of the Christians in the West, the idea of bringing a lost province back into the fold must have been appealing. To lead his expedition, Gregory appointed the prior of his own monastery in Rome. This was the subject of today's episode, Augustine. The classic joke history book, 1066 and all that, tells this story well. Noticing some fair-haired children in the slave market one morning, Pope Gregory said, What are those? And on being told that they were angles, made the memorable joke, Non-angli said angeloi, and commanded one of his saints called St. Augustine to go and convert the rest. Um, Dermot McCulloch suggests that there was a, an air of haste in the mission which was rather improvised and underprepared. Neither Augustine nor any of his companions spoke English. Gregory suggested that they should pick some translators up on their way through France. McCulloch suggests that the slave market anecdote may be true because it would explain Gregory's haste and lack of preparation. Nevertheless, Augustine soon set off from Rome with 40 companions, probably most of them monks. It seems that whilst they travelled northwards through Gaul, modern-day France, the missionaries had a crisis of confidence and did not want to continue. Augustine went back to Rome to ask Gregory for permission to turn around. It is possible that what was really going on here was that Augustine did not have sufficient authority to persuade the group to follow him because Gregory sent him back with the rank of abbot, which clarified his leadership, and the expedition pushed on to Britain. Augustine also carried with him letters of introduction uh, from the Pope to various Frankish bishops. Their destination was the small kingdom of Kent on the south coast of Britain. The English were at that time divided into many small kingdoms, and Kent was the richest and most powerful kingdom, and probably the most populous. One reason for its wealth and power may have been that the Kentish people were under Frankish influence. 
At the time, the Franks were the dominant power in Western Europe, ruling all of what is now France, the Low Countries, and most of Germany. They were another one of these barbarian peoples who had moved into the Roman Empire as it fell. It is obviously from them that we get the name France, and in those days their lands were known as Francia. Ethelbert, the King of Kent, seems to have been some sort of Frankish client. He was married to a Frankish princess called Bertha, the daughter of the King of Paris. This meant that Ethelbert was not entirely unfamiliar with Christianity. The Franks were Catholic Christians, and so Ethelbert's wife Bertha was also a Christian. When she married Ethelbert, part of the agreement was that she was allowed to continue to practice her religion, and she also brought uh, along a chaplain who was himself a bishop named Luthard. So Augustine was not the first Christian to visit the English, and he was not even the first Catholic bishop. The Frankish connection leads us to ask an interesting question about Augustine's mission. Did King Ethelred know Augustine was coming? And did the Franks living across the Channel know? There are two theories that I have read. One is that Ethelbert, who had been living with Frankish Christians at his court for eight years, wanted to become more Frankish and integrated with the Roman world, which would enhance his own power and prestige in England, and so he somehow contacted Pope Gregory to invite a mission to come to his kingdom. The other theory is that Queen Bertha's relatives, the Frankish kings, organised the trip in order to bring Kent more into their orbit. I suspect that it was probably a bit of both. The mission would have probably needed both a Kentish invitation and Frankish connivance to get off the ground. Apart from anything else, as we've already said, Augustine and his companions did not know very much about Britain or the English, and so they would have needed help. We know that they had engaged the services of some Frankish interpreters, who would presumably also have given them guidance and local knowledge about the men of Kent. And also, I suppose, they would need someone to take their group of 40 months across the sea to Britain. Well, whatever the reasons that got him there, on a fateful day in 597 AD, Augustine and his band landed in Kent. Specifically, the record shows that they landed on the Isle of Thanet, which is on the north coast of Kent. Nowadays, it is uh, no longer an island because the English coastline has receded somewhat since then. But in Augustine's time, it was separated from the mainland by a 600 metre wide channel. The Venerable Bede, a monk historian from the north of England, writing about a century later, is our main source for this story. He tells us, On this island landed the servant of the Lord Augustine and his companions, being, as is reported, nearly forty men. They had obtained, by order of the blessed Pope Gregory, interpreters of the nation of the Franks, and sending to Ethelbert, signified that they were come from Rome and brought a joyful message, which most undoubtedly assured to those that hearkened to it everlasting joys in heaven and a kingdom that would never end with the living and true God. The king, hearing this, gave orders that they should stay in the island where they had landed and be furnished with necessaries, 
till he should consider what to do with them. Augustine's primary goal was not to convert all the Kentish people, but their king, Ethelbert. This would have allowed them to establish a permanent base in Kent, and royal support would have encouraged other Kentish people to convert. So, Augustine and his companions waited on the Isle of Thanet, enjoying the provisions Ethelbert had sent, until the king arrived. He received them cordially, but with suspicion. Bede tells us that he insisted on meeting them in the open air, rather than inside, because he was afraid that they would work magic on him. Modern historians now think this was a very calculated show of suspicion. It seems pretty likely that Ethelbert himself was quite keen to become a Christian. H.P.R. Uh, Finberg notes that uh, we may surmise that a political calculation, as well as intellectual conviction, helped to bring about the conversion of English rulers. Uh, no doubt Ethelbert was genuinely interested in an intellectual and spiritual level by the worship and piety of his wife and her Frankish companions. But Christianity was also an intellectually and culturally sophisticated religion and associated with Roman glory. For Ethelbert, Christianity probably represented the civilised world, and to become Christian would have been to become, in a way, Roman. This would have increased his power and prestige among the other English kings, both by giving him closer connections to the continent and also by demonstrating to other kings his cultural sophistication. Christianity may also have been a way for Ethelred to appeal to those British inhabitants of Kent who were still Christians. But Ethelbert also had to be wary. He was first and foremost a warlord and depended on the support of the Kentish nobles, many of whom were presumably quite conservative and attached to their old gods. So he may not have been able to convert straight away, and maybe needed to make a public show of suspicion towards the Italian newcomers. Augustine and his companions, for their part, also put on a good show. They approached, carrying a large silver cross and a painted image of Christ, and sang psalms before sitting down and beginning to teach Ethelred about Christianity. Although, presumably, as he had had Bertha and Bishop Lutard living at his court for eight years, this was not actually his first lesson. Ethelred invited Augustine and his companions to set up shop in his capital, the old Roman city of Dorovernium, which was by then called Canterbury. This means town of the Kentish people. We know that the walls were still standing, and we can imagine that a few shabby Roman buildings were still there, but they would have been mostly in ruins. The English did not know how to build much out of stone and brick. Initially, Augustine and the monks worshipped at an ancient church dedicated to St. Martin of Tours, which still stood from Roman times, and which Ethelred had rebuilt for his wife Bertha. This church still stands today, and is considered the oldest parish church in the English-speaking world. King Ethelbert granted permission for Augustine to repair existing churches and to build new ones, the presence of several still-standing Roman churches does suggest 
the English takeover was not as violent as it was once thought to have been. Augustine restored a large Roman church in Canterbury, this became his cathedral, and also built a monastery outside the walls of the city, which he dedicated to Saints Peter and Paul. Sometime after his death, this was renamed St. Augustine's, and these two churches, the cathedral and St. Augustine's Abbey, were the two major Christian foundations in Canterbury until the Reformation. In using these church buildings, Augustine was apparently consciously imitating Rome. The cathedral was dedicated to the Saviour, it was known as Christ Church, in imitation of the Lateran Cathedral in Rome, which was then dedicated to Christ, but is now called St. John Lateran. The monasteries outside the walls were inspired by monasteries in Rome, just outside the walls. Eventually, the Italians managed to persuade Ethelbert to become a Christian, and he gave them wealth and lands to support the work of the expanding mission. When they first arrived in Kent, Augustine was still an abbot. However, sometime after their arrival, Augustine travelled back to Francia to get himself consecrated as a bishop. To make someone a bishop, you need either an archbishop or three other bishops, and so Augustine had to travel to Francia to do this. We assume that as all this was going on, the 40 Italian missionaries were busy teaching and preaching, trying to gain as many converts as they could. Bede tells us that they lived a simple life, much like the apostles, living in community, praying and singing, preaching, inspiring others by their example. They made some converts. We have to assume that their teaching genuinely interested and attracted many people, and there were also undoubtedly benefits of conversion. Apart from the cultural advancement of becoming Romans, there seemed to have been political benefits. Bede says that while Ethelbert did not compel his people to convert, he did grant favours to Christians. We must also assume that as well as converts, they also began to train native English clergy. We can envision the Italians setting up a school to teach volunteers and probably also children to read and write and to instruct them in the Christian life. Encouraged by these early successes, Augustine sent to Pope Gregory for more help and further instructions. Gregory dispatched a second expedition, led by four men who would all go on to become bishops in England. Melitus, Justus, Laurentius and Paulinus. They brought with them all sorts of equipment including books, relics, vestments and church ornaments, and detailed instructions from Gregory answering several of Augustine's questions. They also brought him a pallium, which you may remember from our episode on St. Alphege. A pallium was a kind of liturgical scarf which went around the neck and down the front, forming a Y shape on the front of the wearer's robes. You can still see the pallium on the coat of arms of the Archbishop of Canterbury today. The pallium was the symbol of an archbishop's authority, and this was a sign from Pope Gregory that Augustine was promoted to archbishop. This was important, as it meant that Augustine could consecrate as many new bishops as he wanted without having to send them to Francia. One other item, which Melitus and co. also probably brought with them, 
was a gospel book, now known to history as the Gospels of St. Augustine. This is one of the oldest surviving manuscripts in the world, having been in almost continuous possession of Canterbury Cathedral for 1600 years. This book is now in the Parker Library at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and is remarkably still in use. It is used for the enthronement of new Archbishops of Canterbury and other important events, like the visit of Pope Benedict XVI to the UK. Gregory's instructions give us some interesting insights into what the early English church was like. His instructions are, for the most part, extremely practical. For instance, Gregory tells Augustine not to destroy pagan shrines, but to convert them into churches as much as possible, and to encourage locals to come over to the new faith. Gregory told Augustine to develop his own church services, based on the best bits from Roman, Frankish, and even native British practices. He also tells Augustine to adopt pagan festivals as much as he can. And he notes, rather conveniently, that while animal sacrifice is no longer permitted, people may assemble on the same day as they would previously have sacrificed animals to the old gods, and slaughter the animals for a feast in praise of the new one, which, I suppose, amounts to the same thing. The most significant section of Gregory's instructions dealt with the future progress of the mission in England. Now that it was clear that Kent had been mostly converted, Gregory was looking further towards expansion into the rest of England. This is where he displayed his real lack of knowledge about the situation on the ground. He seems to have consulted an old Roman map of Britain and seen that there were two provinces, with capitals in London and York. The Roman church's practice was to model its organisation on Roman provinces, and so, assuming that the situation in Britain would not have changed much since the Romans left almost 200 years before, Pope Gregory instructed Augustine to move his headquarters to London and create another archbishopric in York. Each archbishop would have 12 bishops subordinate to them. Now, this was a much more difficult prospect than Gregory may have realised, because both York and London were now in different countries, and the mission in Kent was still precarious. However, Augustine did try his best. He did not move to London himself, as he was quite dependent on the support of King Ethelbert in Kent, but he did set about expanding the mission. In this, Ethelbert's support was quite invaluable. King Ethelbert was, at the time, what was known as the Bretwalder, the High King of Britain, an honorary position which seems to have gone to the most powerful king at any one time, who was recognised as a sort of first among equals by the other English kings. With Ethelbert's support, Augustine established a second bishopric in Kent at Rochester, with Justus as its first bishop. He also sent Miletus to the neighbouring kingdom of the East Saxons, otherwise known as Essex, and he managed to convert its king and establish a church dedicated to St Paul in the old Roman city of London. Yes, this of course uh, was what became St Paul's Cathedral, and Miletus is recognised as the first Bishop of London. 
Augustine and Ethelbert also managed to convert Redwald, the powerful king of the East Angles. Redwald was married to a princess from the East Saxons, and so this may all have been a part of Essex and East Anglia becoming more closely connected to Kent. Redwald becomes important later on in the story of England's conversion, as he succeeded Ethelbert as Bretwalder, and it was him who provided the armed muscle to install the future St Edwin as King of Northumbria. Redwald is the best candidate historians have for being the occupant of the famous burial site at Sutton Hoo, and so his remains and belongings may be those now on display in the British Museum. Redwald's conversion seems to have been unpopular in East Anglia and may have only been skin deep. In an attempt to keep both sides happy, or perhaps just hedging his bets, Redwald had a Christian altar and a pagan shrine side by side in his private chapel. But back to Kent. The only major setback in Augustine's career as Archbishop of Canterbury was his relations with the native British, aka Welsh, Christians. Augustine's instructions had placed all the British churches under Augustine's authority. Gregory's instructions had placed all the British churches under Augustine's authority, and Gregory encouraged Augustine to make contact and bring them into the Roman fold to assist with the conversion of the English. Now, the British church hierarchy that had been pushed out of England and was clinging on in Wales and Cornwall had remained in communion with Rome and were not opposed to contact, but they were probably quite suspicious of this Italian turning up and announcing that he was now in charge. And of course, they hated the English and had never made any attempt to convert them. So it is hard to see how Augustine's overtures to the British could have been very successful. Ethelbert was able to set up the meeting, and Augustine met representatives of the British church somewhere out in the frontier between the English and British territory. Augustine met seven British bishops, including representatives from the monastery at Bangor East Code near Wrexham, which seems to have been one of the centres of the British church. Bede tells us that the meeting got off to a bad start because Augustine, who was old and ill by this point, did not rise from his seat when the British approached. Augustine did not appeal to his own position as their designated superior, but rather to the supremacy of the Roman Church, and the British were not impressed. If we are to believe Bede, who is the only source for the event, Augustine behaved in a high-handed and condescending manner, and so no agreement was reached. But, as mentioned above, there will have been more serious political reasons for the British church to keep its distance from the Italian-English church, and so perhaps we cannot judge Augustine too harshly for this failure. Other than receiving Augustine's mission, King Ethelbert of Kent is also known to history for publishing a law code, or a list of laws. This is the earliest known law code written in a Germanic language, in this case, Old English, as both writing and written law codes were largely a Roman practice. Historians suspect that Augustine had a hand in assisting Ethelbert with his law code, 
partly because it includes strict rules about the punishment of those who steal or damage church property. This is a demonstration of one of the benefits to a pagan king of accepting Christianity. Not only did it give Ethelbert closer connections to Francia and expand his influence in Britain, it also gave him access to a literate, sophisticated body of clerics who were able to help his government. Augustine died on the 26th of May, probably in the year 604. It is not so unusual that we know the date, but not the year, of his death. The clergy at his cathedral would have remembered the day and commemorated it each year, but if no one was keeping an annual record, then they may not have known what year it was. Within a few years, the mission almost collapsed. When Ethelbert died, Miletus was driven out of London and he and Justus of Rochester fled back to Francia. The situation was only salvaged when Laurentius, who succeeded Augustine as Archbishop of Canterbury, managed to convert Ethelbert's son, Eidbald, the new King of Kent. So the mission had lain down roots, but they were remarkably fragile. So what are we to make of St. Augustine? He is traditionally thought of as the man who converted the English, but the situation is clearly more complicated than that. Some historians see him in a fairly unfavourable light. They would argue that Augustine's career was really only successful due to the assistance of two great men, Pope Gregory and King Ethelbert. It was Gregory who chose him for the English mission, encouraged him when he wanted to turn back, and arranged support from Frankish rulers and bishops. And it was Ethelbert who, probably, invited him to Kent, gave him the support he needed to get set up, and had probably already decided to convert anyway. Augustine is therefore just an historical placeholder, carrying out Gregory and Ethelbert's wishes. Frank Stenton says that Augustine owes his position in history to Gregory, as the mission was his idea and Gregory's letters are the only contemporary source about Augustine's life. But Stenton also gives a solid defence of Augustine's legacy, which I quote here. It is easy to emphasise the limitations of his success, his failure to consolidate the British clergy and occasionally signs of weakness in his conduct, and to conclude that he was a meagre personality associated almost accidentally with a great historical movement. There is no sign in his history of the strength and passion which distinguished the leading missionaries of the Dark Ages. Without the advice and support of Gregory the Great, he would have accomplished nothing. But no one who possessed Gregory's confidence should be dismissed as negligible by a modern writer, and Augustine's mission was faced with particular difficulties. He goes on to say that Augustine was converting a people whose culture he did not understand. Later missionaries to Germans were mostly English, so they had a common frame of reference. And Augustine was confronted with a suspicious and well-entrenched ancient native church. Under these circumstances, establishing a strong foothold in one English kingdom should be considered an important achievement. 
I am tempted to agree with Frank Stenton on this. The mission did survive. Aidbald went on to become a respectable Christian king, and Augustine's companions continued to serve as archbishops of Canterbury until the last of them died out in the 650s when they were succeeded by native Englishmen. Augustine certainly deserves an important place in the history of the English church, and in my view, he is much more qualified a candidate to be England's patron saint than George, who had nothing to do with the English and never visited the island. So, yes, although Augustine was in some ways a passive mover in the great events of his time, he must have also been a figure of some personal character, bravery, determination and intellect to set up the Roman mission in England and persuade Ethelbert and others to adopt Christianity. For my part, I've always rather admired the way that a bookish, contemplative monk living in a comfortable Roman monastery dropped everything to travel to a barbarous, warlike and windswept misty island of which he knew nothing. And so I'm always proud to call him the Apostle to the English. Thanks for listening to this episode of Saintly Progress and I hope you enjoyed our discussion about Augustine of Canterbury. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends and please do consider subscribing and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. It all helps to help other people find us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can send me an email at saintlyprogress at gmail.com. Tune in next time where we'll be talking about Justin Martyr, one of the earliest Christian theologians. Until then, thanks for listening.